Past Ball Show, brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f*** you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f***ing Put that in. I don't So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, 6-1 to to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Talk about the past, talk about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going to the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball and from the baseball angle. I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this team sucks. Well, he is out. He's out. Yes, Brad is out. Look at, look at this. Brad is out. And uh, David Mann. I don't want to hear to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. This can run cleaner than any baseball business ever put out in the hundred years of the present time. Sell the team. Oh, yeah, coming at you from the CSB studios in Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey, on EMTR Radio Network. This is, of course, the Past Ball Show, brought to you by JohnPielli.com. Glad to have you aboard, and, you know, glad to be on this new uh, this new format. I think things are going to go ra- great. Everything's going well with the MTR Radio Network, and hopefully you guys tune in to me Thursdays from 5 to 7 we're going to be doing the afternoon drive which is kind of a consistent program and we get the same type of programming in pretty much every day around the same time monday through friday but you know those of you who enjoyed the past ball show and hopefully some of you guys enjoyed some of that because you know it's something that i put a lot of passion and heart into and you look at the way things have gone from the last real year and a half and really the way it started i mean this is essentially a show that uh, really kind of started out to be kind of me venting about the New York Mets for, you know, about an hour or so and then moving on into other things. And really, uh, it started by getting some bloggers, some people that are around the game and involved in the game to kind of give me some feedback and, you know, get on the air with me and discuss a couple things. And we really started the interview process. And uh, I really want to thank everybody that's been there with me from the beginning. And you, the way you see the show is formed. It's really formed into something that's really special now. And, you know, as, as time goes forward, and I've said all along, as long as I'm going to be uh, a radio show host, as long as I'm going to be doing this, which I, I hope, I'm hoping is the rest of my life, I'm going to continue to provide the Passball Show every week, which isn't what it was before because if you remember early on it was really kind of a, a venting thing about the Mets for an hour and you know after we got the bloggers in there I started to get a hold of former current players uh, p- personalities analysts people that are involved in the game and it kind of became more of an interview show and the fact that I, I've, I've, I've done everything I can as far as making sure that I know my history and really kind of being able to take you back in time whether it's the 1800s whether the 
early 1900s and really what is my favorite decade, which is the 1940s, you know, 1940s, 50s, 60s, I think really was when baseball was at its absolute best. And the fact that I'm able to kind of go back there, a lot of stuff, you know, has been uh, kind of fed to me a little bit with Bases Empty blog and everything I do, writing my daily post for them. And really what I do with that is I'm really kind of taking you in different time frames, whether it's, you know, the 1940s, like I said before, or the 70s and 80s. And just, you know, for the diehard baseball fan that just wants to talk baseball, wants to hear baseball, it's it's really the opportunity that I feel like I'm able to give. And, and it's something that's going to continue. And, you know, hopefully the new time slot here, 10 to 12 Saturdays, of course, it'll be replayed a couple times on the MTR radio network. It's going to be fun, man, and we ain't going to stop. We, you know, we're, what we're doing, we're going to continue. Over the next couple months, I really have some very good interviews planned with some uh, some players that are well-known, and we're going to get them up here. We're going to continue to do that. Uh, we've got Boy Meets Machine, which is now known as Reach, which is uh, you know a band that certainly has had a huge impact on this show over the last, uh, last year and a half that we've been doing this. They're coming in studio in a couple weeks. We're going to get a live programming, which will be on Thursday from – five to seven on the 16th which will be may 16th so we're hoping to get them in here and obviously looking forward to everything going on with that but i just want to take the time man for everybody that that is tuned in everyone's been part of the show the listeners the callers uh the people that really do uh you know give the show a couple minutes uh you know i do want to thank everybody who's been involved in it and some it's made the made certainly made the show more enjoyable for me it's something that i look forward to doing and listen nobody i don't think anybody wants wants to talk to the four walls that are around them and i'm i'm glad that you know i could yap baseball talk about what i love talk about what i've been around and done and just pretty much researched in the game of baseball which uh, in, in my opinion and hopefully the opinion of a couple other people is the greatest game out there it really is i mean the way the whole thing is designed if you look at the fact that you got a, a diamond you got a you know it's played in a ballpark where you know in the middle of the summer you see the green grass and everything and uh, you know, it's generally played in really good weather. It, it's the greatest game around. And, you know, if you haven't watched enough of it, I suggest you watch a little bit more because, you know, let's be honest, it's something that it, it is really enjoyable to be part of. And like, like I said, dude, I'm not going to get into this all day, but, uh, you know, going to start out, start things out. We're going to break down a little bit Mets, Yankees and Phillies. And re- really, really the way that things going to work out when I'm doing the afternoon drive or the evening drive or, you know, whatever, whatever MTR is calling it from five to seven on Thursdays. Uh, we're going to do that live. We're going to get more kind of more of what's going on, more about yesterday's game, more about uh, where teams are at at the moment. And, you know, when we get into pass ball, it's going to be more along the lines of what's going on with baseball. And, and we're going to talk about teams. We're going to talk about the season and what's going on and where team, what the direction that, that our local teams are going in, in addition to everybody else. And it, there's going to be kind of a separation there. This is going to be more of the, hey, baseball. And, you know, I made a couple references to a couple things that I've loved listening to and watching growing up. And that's, you know, Ed Randall talking baseball on uh, WFAN where you, you listen Sunday morning and he just breaks down stuff. He talks to some people and stuff like that. Mel Allen did a phenomenal job with this week in baseball that he did for for many, many years before his passing. And and that, that's the kind of format that I want to hit up. And, that, and that's really what I want to be at. And I, I got a bunch of different topics I'm going to hit up today. Um, not going to not going to do any live calls, obviously, because we're not running live right now. 
but uh, hopefully I've got an interview or two planned that I'm kind of working on. And we may actually go through this one interview free. If we do, hey, listen, it's all right. I don't have an issue with it. You know, we're going to get right into things going on right here on the MTR Radio Network, Passball Show, of course. And a couple, couple different things. You talk about the Mets right now. And, you know, if you're a Mets fan, you obviously can't be too excited about what you see right now, what you hear, you know, the games you see. You know, whether, it, whether it's a, a ninth inning loss to the Miami Marlins, whether it's a, a, a loss against the Los Angeles Dodgers in a game they should have won, or whether it's a game that defense doesn't, doesn't come through. Uh, you look at the weakness towards the back end of the Mets starting rotation. It's obviously there. It's evident. Uh, an offense that got off to such a ridiculous start that you just knew very well that there was no way that was going to be able to be maintained. And, and, and really looking at it that way, to me, you, you gotta you gotta have your pause with the New York Mets. You just look at it. You're like, all right. Uh, as a fan, you kind of want to watch because you hope it gets better. There's this picture, this beautiful portrait that's made of what the future is gonna be and what Sandy Alderson wants it to be with the New York Mets. But it's not gonna happen right now. May never happen. It quite frankly may never happen. But the bottom line is you're not gonna see those type of results right now. I mean, you look at a team that really is kind of uh, gonna build off the strength of what its infield can give them because it has a very good major league infield that could kind of compete with a lot of other teams and what you're going to get out of the sensational start of Matt Harvey because Matt Harvey looks like he's dominating right now he he is on pace right now to start the all-star game that's going to be played in city field in the middle of july which is going to be a great moment for new york it's going to be a great moment for obviously the mets and their franchise but that, those are pretty much the two things that they're riding right now as the only strengths. And the problem with this is they're, the rest of the team, the rest of the things going on with the New York Mets are full of weaknesses. And it, it's unfortunate that things are going on that way. But, you know, now you just got to kind of watch to see the way things are going and hopefully get a win or two that they shouldn't. Because right, right now, the way they're sitting in the standings, they are maybe a bad week or two out of being in last place in the National League East, and that's something that nobody expected them to do, as bad as the Mets were predicted to be. And I said last year for 2012 that the Mets were going to finish in last place. They didn't because of what happened in Miami with the Marlins and the bad start, the fire sale, the whole thing. And as the fire sale has, con- has continued into the 2013 season, there doesn't look like there's a worse team in Major League Baseball than the Miami Marlins. So when we're sitting here saying the Mets are better than, it's, it's really it's – really uh, it's really kind of a war of attrition between the Mets as a bad team and another team that just happens to be worse than them. So I'm not going to go over here and give any praise and say that the Mets are going to do anything other than what I expected them to do. And those of you who followed my predictions, you'll see I have the Mets at 69 and 93 and ver- something very hard to swallow as a Met fan. And people may disagree and say, how could you do that? You know, how could you predict your team to do so bad? Look at what you see on the field. Look at the lack of, of defense the Mets have in the outfield. Look at the the situation where you got a guy like John Buck who is absolutely tearing the cover off the ball, and you just know in the back of your head that he's not going to be able to maintain it over the course of a 162-game season. If he can, it'd be great. I love it. I'd love to see John Buck here 
for the next couple of years if he's going to be able to hit the way he is hitting the first month of this season. But it's unlikely. And there, there's too many holes in this team to really jump aboard and be a part of and just expect to kind of bounce uh, you know, some wins off the table. And it, it's going to be a long season for the Mets. And I've, I've said all along what I want my prediction to be and what I really want to stand pat and be the 2013 version of the New York Mets is a team that gets off to a bad start. I'm not wishing the bad start, but it's already seen. You already see it. It's already right before your eyes. The fact that this team can't beat a team like the Miami Marlins. They can't, you know, they, they seem to be beatable no matter who they're playing. And it's not looking good right now. It's not going to look good for a little while. But I do think th- things will turn for the better as the season goes on. I think Sandy Alderson is going to have an eye of maybe looking to upgrade the team. Not necessarily for the present, but maybe make that blockbuster move that's going to have an impact over what you see in the future. And, you know, you look back at 1983 with the New York Mets under Frank Cashin, and at the time Davey Johnson had not taken over as manager yet. They were still managed by George Bamberger, and of course Frank Howard finished off the season in 1983. What, what you're looking at is for that Keith Hernandez type of acquisition. And I don't know if there is a Keith Hernandez out there. And I don't know if the position of need is necessarily first base. But to go out there and maybe make a blockbuster type trade, maybe dip into your farm system and go through pieces that you think are good, but you want to use them for the value that they are and what they're able to do jumping in there and getting things done. Uh, you know, maybe maybe the, maybe some players that you have, maybe some prospects that you think are going to be great just may not be great with the Mets. Maybe they're going to be packaged in to make a type of deal that Frank Cashin made in 1983 when he traded Neil Allen for Keith Hernandez. So that that's something that I'm looking forward to and I'm thinking is going to happen this season. And and let's let's look at some parallels to 19 19- 1983 and to 2013 because the the difference between those teams you had a growing team in 1983 with Daryl Strawberry and Dwight Gooden uh, on the peripheries Strawberry made his debut that season you knew Gooden was coming in the next year Matt Harvey has emerged already and and listen Matt Harvey's not a hitter actually he's, he's a very good hitter but he's not an everyday player but Matt Harvey may be that Daryl Strawberry type of young player that's being the first to make an impact at this team at, at this level and you see a guy like Zach Wheeler who's going to come along next year Dwight Gooden came o- across in 1984 of course so Wheeler maybe making his debut this year and kind of pushing it over into 2014 is a big deal and if you look at the couple young players that the Mets are starting to build around they need that nucleus guy they need that absolute guy to say hey listen we're bringing this guy in to change the culture and, and you know some people think that hey we have that guy in David Wright and David Wright's a very good player. David Wright had a very good season last year. He's off to a good start. He has said and done everything that could be expected from a, a player that's going to be a leader, a, a core guy for a New York Mets team. But the Mets need that other player. I don't know if it's, I don't know what it, where it's going to be. I mean, you, you say the Mets infield looks good, and it is a major league infield with Ike Davis despite his struggles at first base, Daniel Murphy at second, Ruben Tejada at short, and Wright at third. So you say, hey, maybe that core guy that you add in is not going to be an infielder well what does that leave you got to get maybe an outfielder uh, your catcher you're going to trust to be Travis Darno, and, and maybe it's a pitcher but whatever type of player it is and if I had a choice obviously I would go out there and get myself a bona fide everyday outfielder that's going to be like that and, and I think I think that's something that has to be looked at uh, this way 
and it's, it's, it's unfortunate that, you know, the team is not going to look too good this year. But right now, you have to look and see what are you going to do to make this team better for the future. Because holding over the roster and having Travis Darno and Zach Wheeler make their debuts is simply just not going to cut it. Because if Travis Darno is healthy and he comes up there and he produces right away with, with the average, the power, the RBIs, the behind the plate, the whole thing, if he does, what is it a carbon copy of? What you've gotten from John Buck for the first month of the season, and what has that done for wins and losses? It hasn't done very much. So if you're going to bring in a Darno, yes, you want him to be number one, your starting catcher, and number two, you want him to be a core impact type of player. And let's be honest, John Buck obviously is overachieving at this point. He's a middle of the order bat for the Mets. No, no fans look at him as the future, but right now he's getting the job done. And if Travis Darno simply switches places with him and performs at a high level, you're looking at something like this. You're looking at something that says, all right, Johnny, you know, the Mets are kind of going in a good direction right now. They have a catcher. They have an infield. They have Matt Harvey. They have Zach Wheeler. Now is the time, maybe right now. But if you remember the, the timing of the Keith Hernandez trade, it was midseason. And it wasn't midseason to make a push for the playoffs or anything. It was midseason because Frank Cashin went out there to St. Louis and found a team that was looking to unload a star in the prime of his career. And that's what Sandy Alderson needs to do right now. And, and if you want to tell me who the option is, uh, listen, I'm, I'm not so so hell-bent on Giancarlo Stanton, though I would trade Travis Darno and Zach Wheeler for him. Uh, but it, it's something that they're going to have to go out there and find that type of player. And w w what uniform that, that player is wearing right now, uh, listen, we, we don't know right now. But we, what we do know is that uh, a player should – Make their impact this year and be that guy, be that Keith Hernandez, be that guy that's going to be traded for in, ironically, year number three when it comes to the development of the New York Mets and have this team take that step for 2014 like they did in 1984 under Davey Johnson. Now, one thing that obviously sets up is their manager, Terry Collins, right now. He is a lame duck. You pretty much know that if you want to compare 1983 to 2013, George Bamberger did not make it through the season. Frank Howard ends up managing the team for the remainder of the season. You may be in a similar situation with Terry Collins. And let's be honest, as much as he's taken criticism for a couple bad moves that he's made, uh, it's not his fault that this team is not very good. It is not his fault that this team, from year to year to year, that he's been manager of this team has gotten worse. That's not his fault. Unfortunately, as the manager, he is going to have to bite the bullet he's gonna have to take the hit for this this team not getting the job done and it's unfortunate but you know what listen it is what it is and you know Terry Collins losing his job whether it's this season whether it's the end of the season uh, I say at the very least he'll be gone after this season because he's not signed for next year and this team will not get the job done so they'll have a new manager next year 2014 is it a parallel to 1984 well listen the only way it'll be that way and I say this until I'm blue in the face is if the Mets go out there and get themselves another core player and I don't know how they're going to do it I don't know what you suggest giving up I mean you got guys in the minor league system now a couple pitchers uh Michael Fulmer uh Noah Syndergaard uh Rafael Montero and, and obviously a lot of other young pitchers that are that are starting to emerge you got some good young pieces and a Matt Dendecker 
And those may be the type of players that you're going to look to make this type of trade. And it's not going to be easy. You're going to have to part with something of value to get something back of value that's going to turn the corner in this organization. Once again, it's John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going to take our first break of the day. When we come back, we're going to get into some things, uh, wins above replacement. I want to talk a little bit about the umpires and want to jump into a couple of the topics that I got going on. So be back with a lot more going on. Passball Show, back after. Spring is upon us, and as the flowers begin to bloom and the grass grows in, who better to take care of all your landscaping needs than our friends at TNZ Landscaping, the premier full-service landscaping company in the Burlington County area. Services include full lawn care, landscape creation, tree service, and manscaping. That's for you, James. TNZ has experienced landscapers and guaranteed clean and prompt service. TNZ is fully insured and licensed with the state of New Jersey for full pesticide use. With over 20 years of experience with both residential and commercial properties, TNZ is the place to go. Don't trust your landscaping to just anyone with a mower. TNZ offers a wealth of experience and expertise at the same prices as the inexperienced landscapers out there. So call today, 609-332-5533. That's 609-332-5533. Or visit TNZlandscaping.com. And be sure to follow them on Facebook and Twitter. TNZ Landscaping, 609-332-5533. Or TNZlandscaping.com. M. Broadcasting online all the time, this is MTR Radio, America's radio station. Welcome back. Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Of course, this is John Pielli, ready to knock out some solid baseball talk. We got in a little bit about the Mets. We're going to talk a little bit about the Yankees and the Phillies later on in the show. But I do want to get into one thing that I was thinking about the other day. And I think it just adds to just how much I think of this this player as a baseball player, as an American, as a man. I mean, you, you, really, you look at a guy like Ted Williams and you look at where his statistics end up when things are all said and done. And the fact that he ranks, you know, where he does with, with everything that he's done, the 347 average, the 500 home runs, everything that he's done a, as a major league player, he obviously established himself not only as a great player, but as an immortal. And you keep thinking in your head exactly what this guy could have been, what he could have done. Um, had he just played his full career, had he just gone out there and played his 20, 22 to 24 years as a major leaguer or maybe even a little longer. Because in the end, baseball players are judged by the, the results. And, and some things are 
you know, are kind of take, taken to a point where you look at a batting average, a, a good batting average, a bad batting average, that, that, that doesn't matter how long you played. But if you play longer, uh, you have a chance to get 3,000 hits, maybe uh, 3,500, 4,000 hits. Uh, you play a little longer, you get a chance to hit 600 home runs instead of 500 home runs. Uh, and obviously where you rank uh, in – when it comes to all the statistics in Major League Baseball, the longer you play, the more numbers you get a chance to pad on. And Ted Williams is probably the example of the one player that didn't get that chance to benefit from uh, a long career, a, a guy who could pad on some numbers towards the end. You look at a guy like Sandy Koufax, you know, who he retires after winning 27 games. Uh, you know, Pete, Pete Rose is probably the opposite of that. He's a guy that, that ends up playing as a player manager towards the end of his career and kind of just inserting himself in to, to end up breaking the all-time hitting record. Ricky Henderson is another example of a guy that just continued to play and play. All of a sudden, he has more walks than anybody in history, more runs scored than anybody in history. A guy like Ted Williams doesn't get that opportunity. But I throw the, the Koufax comparison in for this reason. You know, Sandy Koufax uh, probably had about five to seven, eight, maybe of the greatest seasons a pitcher could ever have and is in a Hall of Fame because of that. And you think, hey, what could have Sandy Koufax have accomplished if he went out there and finished his career, if he went out there and and and, and scored, you know, uh, you know, a, as a pitcher, another couple 20-win seasons? Could he have been a 300-game winner? Could he have been the all-time leader in strikeouts? You know, all these different things. And I, 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 find, I obviously find them interesting. But Ted Williams is known, of course, for representing the country the United States of America in World War II as he was one of the first players, the first big-time players, you know, along with Bob Feller and, of course, uh, you know, other guys like Stan Musial who, who enlisted after the bombing of Pearl Harbor in 1941. And, of course, uh, Williams, as a fighter pilot, kind of putting himself on the front line, risking his life, uh, you know, ended up missing about three full seasons, maybe even a little more, just about four seasons from 42 to 45 in his career. And, uh, and those are are, you know, those are you know, cra- you know, crazy things to think about. What could have Ted Williams accomplished if he w- if he played maybe in a different generation, maybe one that the country wasn't in a world war? I mean, if he played in the '60s or he played in the '20s, you know, time times were a little bit different. I mean, if he wasn't going hand-to-hand in combat, uh, you, you look at a guy and you would think that he would have a chance to certainly accumulate more numbers. Not only that, but in 1952, he, he, play, he played a game you know, before enlisting to serve the country in Korea, which almost caught, would cost him just about the balance of two more seasons. And, and if you look at where he ranks all time statistically, yeah, on, on that merit alone, He's one of the greatest players to ever play this game. And I've said all along, and you could disagree with me if you want, uh, he, is, he is top three. And, and honestly, there's Ty Cobb, there's Babe Ruth, and there's Ted Williams. And in my opinion, I don't think there is a one, two, three with them. Those are the three greatest position players to ever put on a major league uniform. And, 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 if it, and if you look at Ted Williams and you look at a lot of other players that unfortunately got hurt in the middle or the, the end of their career and weren't able to finish off some, some great things that they had started, Ted Williams never got hurt. He didn't have a major injury that derailed his career or that forced him to retire early. He was just serving the country in World War II and in Korea.
and he missed the better part of five plus. Maybe you can even make the case there's about six seasons in Ted Williams' career that you say were destroyed because he was out serving his country, you know, in wars, whether it was World War II or Korea. So when you're ranking players and baseballreference.com, Sean Foreman, the whole thing, I think he does a good job as far as putting the sabermetrics into things and, you know, the attention that's put to the wins above replacement statistic absolutely hurts Ted Williams. And you know why it hurts him? Because he didn't have the longevity. Of, of a career that some of the other guys had. And it wasn't his fault. He didn't miss time because of injury. He, he was serving his country in the front lines of a freaking war. And the fact that he lost that time, he doesn't get the pad on the numbers that, no offense, great players, but guys like Henry Aaron got, got a chance to do. Uh, you know, even Stan Musial, who served the country in World War II, uh, you know, he had those couple extra years when, when Williams was in Korea. So when you look at the wins above replacement stat, and here's my issue. Here's maybe, maybe, maybe uh, a chance to kind of negotiate here, a treaty, uh, if you were to say, maybe with the, the sabermetricians, the baseball, uh, you know, the numbers guys of the world. Wins above replacement, and you can see the way it's ranked. Obviously, if you follow baseballreference.com, the players are ranked with cumulative wins above replacement. And for those of you who, you know, don't really understand it too much, you know, the wins above replacement is, is obviously set up to say how, how many wins is the guy above what would be a replacement player or a minor league type of player. And guys like Babe Ruth, who played there 23 years and have a wins above replacement uh, well over 10 a season. Uh, you know, play, let's say, 23 seasons. You know, Pete Rose, who plays as many seasons as he is. Ricky Henderson plays as many seasons as he did. Yes, the quality of play certainly is, is worth measuring. But a guy who gets three more seasons, maybe towards the end of their career, will rank higher when it comes to cumulative wins above replacement than a guy like Ted Williams. And here's my proposition. Here's what I have for you to kind of chew on for a little bit. Take wins above replacement, and you want to keep the cumulative stats, that's fine. You want to rank hitters against pitchers, eh, I don't like that at all. I'll, I'll explain that to you a thousand times why I don't think a hitter can be compared to a pitcher. Obviously, it's like comparing apples to oranges. But you want to do that, that's fine. But grab the stat. Grab wins above replacement and do it amongst average. You want to say an average wins above replacement over the course of their career. And to say a guy like Ted Williams may, and you know, he may rank uh, around like 12 per year. Babe Ruth may rank around 12 for for you know per year, and and then you match them up, and that that's how you're going to determine the best players of of generations. And 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 I, and I see you know you look at the rankings when it comes to wins above replacement, and you see players getting the benefit or credit for for the fact that they've been able to accumulate a not a, a you know a number a, a number of seasons and i just i just think that if you grab the stat and you make it an average what is somebody's average wins above replacement over over the course of their entire career then a guy like Ted Williams will get more credit. And I do think this guy deserves more credit. I, obviously, he is, he is a Hall of Famer. He has gotten all the credit in the world for everything he's done. But I think he deserves a little bit more. And grabbing this wins above replacement stat and make it a cumulative thing as opposed to total 
it makes an absolute difference because because really what what are you what are you looking at you want to say a guy played three or four more years you obviously know that ted williams missed all of 1943 all of 1944 and all of 1945 and not only that came back there was four for ten in six games in 1952 before serving his country in korea and came back for the final 37 games in the 1953 season and hit 407 37 for 91 in 37 games the fact that he that he missed all that time is not fair should not ju- make him judged differently than 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 other players and and i do i do think if you look at it you know from from a perspective of total war total wins above replacement i mean ted williams ranks if i'm not mistaken 14th amongst players of all time and to me i don't think that does it justice and if you look at the numbers, if you look at your cumulative wins above replacement, and I'm going to go over it real quick. Uh, Babe Ruth ranks number one with 183.8. Cy Young is second with 168.4. And you go through the list, Walter Johnson, Barry Bonds, Willie Mays, Ty Cobb, Henry Aaron, uh, Roger Clemens, Tris Speaker, Hannes Wagner, Stan Musial, Rogers Hornsby, Eddie Collins, and then Ted Williams is at number 14. And the reason that Williams, as far as his total career wins above replacement, is so low is he didn't play the amount of seasons that these other players played. Eddie Collins played 25 years. Rogers Hornsby, 23. Stan Musial, 22. Hannes Wagner, 21. Tris Speaker, 22. Roger Clemens, 24. Henry Aaron, 23. Ty Cobb, 24. Willie Mays, 22. Barry Bonds, 22. Walter Johnson, 21. Cy Young, Babe Ruth, 22. So Ted Williams played 19 seasons, and obviously that was not a fault of anybody uh, 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 of his own. And if he went out there and played the additional three, four seasons and, and add another 10-plus war, then he's ranking pretty much within the top two or three of the best players in the history of the game. So you take this stat, you take this wins above replacement stat, and instead of making it cumulative, you make it average per season. And, and, and to say that this, this guy could go out there and average when it comes to wins above replacement at, you know, around 10, I, I think that's very fair. And if you look at, you know, if you wanted to really put an average of what he did, accumulating the 126.3, which was his career off, um, you know, his career total war, it's going to average about eight or nine. And you look at a guy like Babe Ruth, and you look at his best seasons to his worst seasons and how he finished up, he'd be around the same place. And, and in my opinion, I don't think there's any way to change what, you know, you know, what, what numbers were accomplished. But I think you could look at it, looking at Ted Williams and what he accomplished through his entire career and say that he was one of the top two or three players to ever play this game. I mean, if you look at for what the guy did in two statistics that absolutely stand out, he he hit 344 for his career. His career OPS is 1.116, which is outstanding. And if you look at where that ranks amongst the best players to ever play this game, it's unbelievable. And, you know, the fact that as an as on-base plus slugging, he is second behind just Babe Ruth. And, and his OPS is better than that of guys like Lou Gehrig and Barry Bonds and Jimmy Fox. 
And the fact that he averaged 1.1 a season in on-base plus slugging, it, it, to me, is enough of a stat to judge him being where he is all time. And I've said before, and I've had pretty much my top five and set up the peripheries of what would be my top 10 best offensive players of all time. You know, it starts with Babe Ruth and Ty Cobb, but Ted Williams is in that conversation. And you want to go maybe four to five, I got Stan Musial, I got Willie Mays, and then six through ten is going to have guys like like Henry Aaron, guys like Barry Bonds, guys, you know, like that. That, that did the job throughout their course of a career and were immortal-type players. Rogers Hornsby has got to be in that conversation. But my, my opinion, my feelings about this is that, you know, you look at Ted Williams, and to me he just does not get enough, enough justice for what he did in his career. I mean, the fact that he missed three seasons from 43 to 45 in the absolute prime of his career – does not do it enough justice for what this guy did for Major League Baseball. That being said, we're going to move on a little bit, stay kind of in the historical things. I did a uh, article the other day about Ed Charles, and of course, uh, those of you who watched the Jackie Robinson movie Forty Two will real will you know will see that Ed Charles as a character is portrayed in the movie. And you know where I thought they got it wrong a little bit is Ed Charles is. Uh, seen as a little kid in that movie and remember 1947 Ed Charles is 14 years old so uh, maybe they wanted to get that whole little kid looking from above or, or looking from beyond trying to see what Jackie Robinson is doing if he has, is going to get a chance to be a major leaguer I, I get that I thought that was a great part of the movie uh, I'm honestly one of my favorite parts to it but you didn't have the right age there Ed Charles was 14 years old when that happened but I did get into a little bit about Ed Charles because one thing that he was kind of unjustly given was a chance to start his career at a later age and he you know he was a guy that was drafted at the age of 20 he was up you know up playing professional baseball by 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 age 20 21 of course he missed a little time due to service but when he came back uh, the fact that this guy had to wait four plus seasons in triple a before getting a chance to play in the major leagues was an absolute joke. And he showed it when he made his debut in 1962 at age 29. The 29-year-old Ed Charles was ready to play, and he shows that he'd been ready to play. And it cost him. It cost him at least two or three more seasons to his career when, of course, he ends up retiring after the Mets win the World Series in 1969. Ed Charles should have gotten a chance to play. Of course, being a guy that was drafted, uh, you know, and traded to the Milwaukee Braves, and the Milwaukee Braves had a, a legendary third baseman in their own right by the name of Eddie Matthews. And Eddie Matthews, from the day that he stepped foot on a major league field, was a dominant home run hitter and remained it throughout his entire time in Milwaukee and eventually Atlanta. And what happens with Ed Charles is, yes, he's trapped because they don't have a place for him. And if you look at some of his statistics, you'll realize that the Braves and their organization tried Ed Charles at second base, and he didn't do a bad job. And if you look at what the Braves had as a second baseman at that time, they could have very easily brought Ed Charles in and allowed him to get the job done. Bobby Avila Avila was playing second base. Felix Mantilla was playing second base. Eventually, they trade for Frank Boiling of the Detroit Tigers. And obviously, Boiling was a very good defensive second baseman, had a very good career not only in Detroit, but after he joined the Atlanta Braves. But Ed Charles didn't get a shot. 
And it wasn't until he was traded to the Kansas City Athletics that he ended up making his debut. And Ed Charles making his debut in 1962 got off to a very good start. He, he hit 17 home runs that season. He, he showed that he was an everyday Major League third baseman. But he didn't get the opportunity sooner, and I thought that was a little bit of a disappointment. You look at what happened in, 19, in 1954, of course he ends up being in the military. But pulling up his minor league stats for 58 to 61, in my opinion, there's no reason this guy should not have even gotten a cup of coffee with the Milwaukee Braves. And I don't know, I don't know if it was a situation where they didn't want him competing with Eddie Matthews, which to a point is understandable. But in the end, I don't agree with it. You know, it, you know, he got the job done. He started to grow a little bit uh, in Wichita in 1958. He had 258. I'm sorry, two, 284 with six homers, 51 RBIs. He improved the next year. The batting average didn't, but uh, four homers, 76 RBIs in 59 with, with Louisville. And remember, the uh, minor league affiliate of the Milwaukee Braves, just like it does now with a lot of teams, switched from Wichita to Louisville. And within two years was in Vancouver in 1961, where he had 305, 13 homers, 77 RBIs. And he performed like that for a balance of four consecutive seasons and even beyond that. How in the hell are you not in the major leagues? And Ed Charles had to have worn that burden. The fact that he was that good, he was major league ready, probably in 58 or 59. And he doesn't get the chance to make his major league debut until he's finally traded to the Kansas City Athletics before the 1962 season. And he, he, he was good. You know, 62, he, you know, he hits 288 as a rookie, uh, 17 homers, 74 RBIs, like I mentioned before. You know, 1579 the next year, 1663 and 64. Fades a little bit, a little bit of injuries in 65. 66 and 67, he starts to kind of uh, take a back seat as far as being a dominant everyday player. And, of course, he becomes kind of, a, kind of a guy that fills in a little bit. The Mets acquire him in 1967. And, he, you know, he finishes off that season, has a very good 1968 season that not a lot of people look at. He hit 276, 15 home runs, 53 RBIs while playing a very good defensive third base. And, of course, he finishes it off in 69. And remember, the Mets ha had a number of players playing third base for them in 1969. Ken Boswell played a little bit uh, there. Wayne Garrett was kind of making his presence known in 1969. So it was kind of a platoon situation. Ed Charles became a role player in the 1969 season. And looking at it from that perspective, listen, the guy was shortchanged. The guy played eight years in the major leagues when he could have easily played 11 or 12. And I think it's a shame because this guy was a very good defensive third baseman, known as the glider, you know, known as a guy that could play excellent defensive third base. And he he got shortchanged. And and I don't know if it I don't know if it was a thing based on race because remember a couple of the guys that were part of that Atlanta those uh, Milwaukee Brave teams were Eddie Matthews and Henry Aaron. They were the staples. They were the foundation of that franchise. So Ed Charles may not have necessarily been held out because of race, but here's a guy that unfortunately uh, did not get a chance to to uh, to complete what he was what he was scheduled to complete, and I think it's a little bit of a shame, a little bit of disappointment because Ed Charles had a chance to finish with a much better career than he ended up finishing off with. 
But moving on, once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Hopefully you're enjoying me, whether you're listening on a Saturday morning or, you know, one of the other times that it's replaying. A um, lot of things going on in Major League Baseball. We're going to take a jump back. You know, we're kind of done kind of hitting the, uh, the, uh, the non-contemporary stuff, the stuff from back in the day. You know, we talked about Ted Williams. We talked about Ed Charles. And, uh, you know, that, that's the kind of stuff you're going to, you know, you're going to get used to hearing about. But Major League Baseball, you know, we hear all the talk about instant replay, about how things should or should not change when it comes to the, the officiating, the umpiring. Every day if you watch a game, if you follow all, uh, you know, 16 games, I'm sorry, 15 games that are played on an average Major League day, you're going to find a mistake or two made by the umpire. And it's not the mistakes in itself that are what's frustrating or what gets your ear as a fan. It's the fact that a lot of these mistakes, there's no accountability. And an umpire is going to go out there and not, let's say, I'll make an example, uh, Tim McClellan makes a call in the New York Mets game against the Marlins. He misses it, but is not, nowhere near in the right position to make the call. And instead of asking for help, he says, hey, I made it right, ends up missing the call. Other umpires have gone out there and they've made mistakes. And, and, and I, don't, I don't mind a guy making a mistake and saying later on, hey, I made it. I missed it. And, and that's going to happen. You understand the human element involved in umpiring a Major League Baseball game. There's going to be mistakes. And I, I don't think anybody's going to be that upset if a guy says, hey, I, I blew the call. I'm sorry. But there are things available in the game, not just instant replay, that the other umpires can help each other out. And, all, and the umpire that makes the call should have balls enough to ask if somebody had a better view of it. And that's all you do. You don't do it just because a manager's out there yelling in your face and saying, check it, check it, check it. That's when your ego gets tested. And you can see a guy like McClellan's ego get tested and says, hey, I made the call right. But how much of a man does it take to go out there and just say, listen, did anybody else get a better view of this than I did? Check with the home plate umpire if you're umpiring third. Maybe the second base umpire just happens to see the play a little better. If they do, ask if they saw anything different. And give another umpire, even if he has less seniority than you, a chance to overturn it. Because every umpire, if you interview them, if you ask them a question about this, they're going to say that they want the game to be umpired and officiated correctly. They want the calls to be made correctly. That being said, why don't you ask for help if somebody is, is, is asking you about it? The umpires, to me, just say, hey, I got it right, and anybody that argues with them is wrong. Sometimes they make mistakes. I make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. Just give there the opportunity to be the most correct call made. And I'm not saying instant replay is the answer because I don't think it is. I think instant replay, the way it's used now in Major League Baseball, should be the way that it's used. And you may disagree with me. That's fine. You know, messes messes me at Twitter. My Twitter handle is John underscore Pielli. You know, check me out on Facebook. Um, you know, me message MTR Radio. You know, obviously the Facebook page they have up there, which now has over 5,000 fans. But instant replay, in my opinion, should stay the way it is. You have to school these umpires to have the best interest of the game when they're out there and not let their stupid egos take over. 
Because if there's a chance, that split second, that maybe minute between when the call is made to when that next pitch is thrown, you have a chance to get it right. And I don't think a lot of umpires care about that. They'll tell you all the right things. They'll give you the rhetoric. They'll say everything correctly like you want to hear. But the problem is, when it comes down to them, for them to ask if any umpire got a better view of something, which is something they weren't able to do years ago, they're not taking that opportunity. And they want their job to look the best, don't they? They don't want to be judged as the guy that misses all these calls. They don't want to be ranked when you're ranking the umpires from best to worst as, as, the, as the guy that misses all these calls. We all miss calls. We all make mistakes, but you have a chance to correct it. And you don't even need instant replay to do it. And it's my message to all MLB umpires, whether you are the best at what you do or the worst at what you do, whether you have 30 years of seniority, whether you just got there and you're your umpire in your first game, use the rest of the crew. Because let's be honest, you remember a Tom Connolly who was maybe one of the greatest umpires of all time in the early part of the 1900s. A Jocko Condon, who, of course, was a longtime National League umpire, one of the best to ever do it. Any of those umpires didn't have things the way they do now. They got four-man umpiring crews. And to me, it should be a reason why most calls should be correct. You know, in 1900, you had a one-man umpiring crew. The guy was calling strike balls and strikes from beyond the pitcher's mound because he had to be at all bases. You added a second umpire. You added a third umpire. You got four umpires right now. Four. There's no reason why they can't consult each other and get the play right. And listen, there's going to be calls that are blown. It's understandable. I've said this all along. I'm not taking a human element out of this game. I'm not making this a computerized system. I'll tell you that. While I think the umpiring has to get better, I'm not for changing it to a computerized system. Because what are you, you going to do? Are you going to argue with a freaking computer screen? Are we going to have the manager that goes out there and kicks the computer and breaks it? It's a game of human element. The players have the opportunity to correct things, to make a difference by making the right or wrong decisions on the field. Same thing with the umpires. But the umpires have to put themselves in the best position possible to get calls right. And I suggest, just like I suggested with the average war statistic, to Major League Baseball that they encourage that, that they encourage the umpires to go out there and consult with each other. Let's be honest, you, you look at a check swing now, and the umpires want to make the call at the plate. The catcher, the pitcher, the manager is pointing to the base for, to get an appeal on it, and the, and the umpire at home plate says, no, I got it right, it's a strike or it's a ball. That didn't happen 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Since when did these umpires get the balls to say, hey, because I'm behind home plate, I'm the king? They're not in a position to always get the best judgment on a check swing, which is why for years there's been that appeal to first base or to third base, depending on a hitter. That is not a call for a home plate umpire. And if MLB is doing anything right, they're going to eliminate that. They better. 
just like the wasted, you know, pick off to, you know, fake the third, throw to first. The appeal play needs to be brought back. And let's be honest, it's something that's dying in Major League Baseball. And it's just showing how umpires are getting a little full of themselves, how they're thinking that they cannot be wrong. They want to take all the authority. They say, hey, I got it. And you don't always have it, buddy. And that's the damn truth. So I do think, listen, no, no further instant replay, but the umpires need to be coached better. Two things that can definitely make a difference. You encourage the umpires to consult with each other if there's a borderline call, even if it's a meeting like you, like you do when the umpires get together before they go to video review something and come up with the best call. Obviously, somebody's going to be pissed off and somebody's going to be happy, but at least you get the call right and stop allowing these home plate umpires to make strike or ball calls on check swings. It has to change. Once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network, uh, finishing up the first hour here. One more thing I'm going to get into. Um, if you notice a couple things that are consistent about the Toronto Blue Jays, and of course they're not off to a very good start, um, to the chagrin of some, probably to the, uh, the overwhelming happiness of, of those fans that want to see the team that looks the best do the worst. And that's a similar situation going on to what you see with the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, where they're off to a bad start and you say, hey, look at all the money they spend. Ha ha. You know, for the average baseball fan that roots for the underdog. And the way I look at this is the Toronto Blue Jays have kind of been known for two things. Not, not necessarily for spending money, what they did. They obviously decided that this was the time to go for it. They went out, they made the blockbuster trades for Jose Reyes and Mark Burley and Josh Johnson. And, of course, getting uh, R.A. Dickey from the Mets. But they, they, they seem to have this obsession with catchers. And I've talked about it before. The amount of catchers that they bring in. Whether they have Josh Tolley and Mike Nickius and a couple other guys sitting in the minor leagues. Or guys that they claim on waivers to just have depth. Remember, Yorvi Toriaba was there last year. You know, you look at other catchers that, it, you know, are, are kind of backup material. But they have two, three, four of them. They're holding on to three catchers just about all times. And the other thing is their propensity to go after players on waivers. And the waiver process in Major League Baseball is something that, that, that I enjoy because it gives you a chance that if a team takes a player off the roster, that if you feel like you could be upgraded by adding that player, you go out there and you claim them. Toronto Blue Jays, they're, they're using it to just claim everybody. And, and I, don't, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think it's a spot where you can't just go there and claim players just because they're out there. Claim them because there's a need. And starting from the end of last season, looking at players that they brought in, whether it was Scott Cousins or Bobby Wilson or David Herndon, Scott Main, Eli Whiteside, Mickey Story, Russ Kanzler, Chad Beck, Tommy Hadovy, Lars Anderson. And, of course, what's happened this year from Guillermo Moscoso, Todd Redman, Alex Burnett, Clint Robinson, Edgar Gonzalez, Casper Wells, Aaron Laffey. You add players like this because you need them. You add players like this because you could use them. But the thing is, don't just do it for the sake of doing it. I understand that Alex Antopoulos wants to have the depth in his minor league system. And, and it's commendable. But don't claim players that are going to have no right getting through waivers afterwards. Like a Casper Wells was a, the, the perfect example. Here's a guy you weren't going to pass through uh, waivers and outright to AAA. 
You know, it cost the guy a month of his career where he had to wait in limbo through through you know free agency and pending you know where he's going to go, and and it, and it could have ruined the guy's career. You know, if you were going to claim Casper Wells, you keep him on your forty-man roster. Bottom line, and, and I don't think it could be said any other way. I don't like the fact that they're going out there and they're claiming players just for the sake of claiming them. You bring a player in because you either think they can help you or not. But this is going to wrap up the first hour of the show right here, Passball Show MTR Radio Network. Be back with one more solid hour. Um, Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, We're going to take our big break. We'll be back after this. 